calling us into a covenant relationship with you and with one another. Be gracious with us this morning, Father, I pray. Give us ears to hear your word that we might submit hearts that truly desire to obey out of love and gratitude for the great work that your son did for us on the cross so many years ago. I pray, Lord, that we would recognize that this relationship you've called us into with you and with one another is a grand blessing bestowed upon all those who repent and believe and follow your son, Jesus Christ. Give us wisdom today in hearing and obeying that your son might be glorified in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. You'll have to forgive me this morning. Uh, I spent the entire week in a jury box. I was called to jury duty. Some of you know that. You've been praying for me. Continue to pray, please. Patience is growing thin. It may go two more weeks. Uh, My first time in a jury box. Um, Real hard listening to people talk, certain individuals talk without saying much. Um, Would like to expedite the process, but relying upon God's timing in it all. Um, So... The sermon, unlike, you know, normal weeks when I have several hours, um, the sermon is not what I would consider finished, but you will finish it for me as you take God's word and apply it to your hearts and minds by God's grace through this sinner. He will still be glorified in the preaching and teaching this morning. We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 18, 19, and 20. It is a large section, largest, probably one of the largest sections I've ever preached from, um, looking at the central theme here, which is covenant relationships. Several weeks ago, we looked at God restoring the covenant with Israel, and we looked at that relationship that God establishes with his people. Today, we're going to take that and we're going to apply it to the covenant relationships he calls us into with one another, not only in our marriages between husbands and wives, but within the church as well, between brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I don't, I don't need to tell you that relationships in today's day and age we, when we look out, when we look at our own families, when we look out at our neighbors and we look into the culture, relationships today are dubious at best and in many cases they are downright destructive. But this is not how God created us to be. He did not create us to have a destructive relationship with him, nor did he create us to have a destructive relationship with one another. But sin entered its way into the world, into God's good creation, and the first thing that suffered when sin came into the garden was relationships. It suffered with God first, and it has suffered now uh, with man as well. And so we start here in 1 Samuel chapter 18, and what we find here for the remedy, which is the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ, is reestablishing covenant relationships, first with God and then with one another. At the beginning of chapter 18 here in 1 Samuel, we find David and Jonathan making a most extraordinary covenant one to another. And it is a beautiful relationship. It is one that should captivate you. And I want to encourage you to go back after today and study this relationship between Jonathan and David. It is something that we should emulate and strive for in our relationships uh, one to another. So they establish it in chapter 18, and then there's a reaffirming of it at the end of chapter 20 before they depart. And they don't see each other again. Jonathan the son, the, the son of King Saul, the heir to the throne, and David, the to-be king who had been anointed by God. They never see each other again in the narrative. And their parting, as we'll see, is both sweet and bitter at the same time. Now, a covenant relationship is different than most relationships we see played out in the world today. A covenant relationship is based upon commitment. It's based upon two people entering into a relationship based upon a promise. And within that relationship, you have mutual consent and a biblical love. In other words, the relationship, it's not based upon feelings, emotions, or consequences. Those will come into the relationship. But a biblical uh, covenant relationship is grounded in truth and commitment. In a covenant relationship, the oath and the vow, the oath and the vow take authority over feelings, fears, and even lapses of fidelity. Now, many do not like the word covenant. We don't like it in the culture, and many in the church do not like it either. But we are a Reformed Covenant Southern Baptist Church. And if you're a member here at our church, then you have looked at the covenant, and you've agreed to it, and you've said yes, amen, and you've entered membership with us. The reason that we don't like it today is because, like most blessings from God, we've taken it, and we've twisted it, and we've perverted it. And so when we, use the word like, when we use the word covenant with God, or covenant with man, or covenant between husband and wife, We hear things like 
binding, restrictive, oppressive, legalistic, controlling, unloving. And those could not be further from the truth, certainly from a biblical standpoint, and we know that historically as well. So this morning I will ask you, why choose covenant over convenience? Why choose fidelity over flirting? Good book title. Why choose true commitment one to another over acquaintances? Why would you enter into any covenant relationship with anybody? God, man, husband, wife, why would you? Because we'll see today that the blessings that come from covenant relationships are beyond description. I'm not even going to be able to give them all to you. I'm going to give you some of the big ones that I saw in these chapters, but they are, they are in, they're so amazing and they're uncommon. I want to show you first that in a covenant relationship, you can have the cultivation of an uncommon love. An uncommon love can flourish in a covenant relationship. In a covenant relationship, you can know right allegiance, order in who you spend time with, who you minister to. And lastly, I want to show you that in a covenant relationship, there can be security and peace in a true covenant relationship. So let's look at these, some of these uncommon blessings. And let's start by looking at this uncommon love that can be cultivated in a covenant relationship. 1 Samuel chapter 18. Look at verses 1 through 5 with me, please. 1 Samuel 18, beginning in verse 1. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and David loved him as his own soul. Verse 3. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So we we start this new section in chapters 18, 19, 20 with Jonathan establishing a Jonathan who is the oldest son to King Saul, the heir to the throne, he steps into a binding covenant relationship with the shepherd boy from Bethlehem. And he enters into this relationship and it's a relationship that's understood that he's going to love David for better or worse because of the covenant that was established. And we're told here that it was an expression of his love a love that just like he loved his own soul. And two things he does here. First, he enters into a covenant. When it says in verse 3, Jonathan made a covenant with David, that word in the Hebrew made literally means to cut. It's karath. And it, it symbolizes, for those of you who know your Old Testament, when covenants were made between two people, they would take an animal and they would sacrifice the animal and they would cut it into pieces and they would take, take the pieces and put it into two rows. And the parties who were making the covenant would pass through the two pieces. And in doing so, what they were saying was this, if I am unfaithful to this covenant, then may I end up in pieces like this animal. Jonathan, the future king, enters into a loving, binding relationship with David. But there's something else that he does here that absolutely infuriates his father a little bit later in chapter 20. In verse 4, it says this, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, and he gave it to David, his armor, his sword, his bow, and his belt. Here's Jonathan, identified as the heir to the throne, as the son of the king, And he takes off that identification. He takes off the royal robe and he puts it on David. And he takes his armor and he takes his sword. He gives it to to the ordained to be king. In other words, he was renouncing his rightful position as heir to the throne. He was renouncing his rightful position as son of the king. And he was bestowing it upon David. Now, this was unheard of in the Near East at that time. And I would argue this is unheard of in human history. Kings do not relinquish and transfer power joyfully and willingly like this. The flesh does not do this. The flesh loves power. The sinful heart desires to control and to be in positions of authority. In fact, what we see in human history is just the opposite. Kings and heirs to kingdoms did everything they could to eliminate a potential threat. What Jonathan should have been doing in the flesh was trying to put David to death, not giving him his throne freely. But that's what he does here. Jonathan and David had truly been knit together and therefore Jonathan joyfully gave up his future crown. Only biblical love, only covenant love looks like this. 
so uncommon. It compels us to do things and say things that the flesh does not compel us to do. John said in 1 John 3, 18, that love like this is not with words or tongue, but with actions as in tr- and in truth. Jonathan, being greater than David, made himself lesser. He condescended that he might love David rightly because David had been ordained by Samuel, who had been told by God, you'll be the next king. And so Jonathan came under God, came under Samuel, and came under David, even though that hadn't transpired yet. He loved David. Covenant love relationships provide the structure, a, a boundaries, an axiom for radical love to be displayed, radical sacrificial love to be displayed. Why? Why? Because in a covenant relationship, your primary concern is the other person. In a true biblical covenant relationship, your greatest concern is the well-being, the physical, spiritual, emotional well-being of the other person. And therefore, you're going to pour yourself out on them and in them. And that's exactly what Jonathan was doing here. In a covenant relationship, it's about the other person. It's not about you. How contrary to the culture. How contrary when I hear young people talk to me about getting married and they say, well, he's just right for me. Why? Well, he's handsome. He makes a lot of money. He's stable. He has a good job. Wait a minute. That's all about you. Yeah, that's what the relationship's about, right? No. Covenant relationship's about the other person. Their needs, their wants, their concerns, their spiritual maturation. And if this relationship, if both parties are actively engaged in covenant relationship, it's glorious. Because what do you have? You actually have a, a microscopic version of what takes place in the holy triune God. God the Father pouring himself out to serve and love the Son. God the Son pouring himself out to love and serve the Father. In a true covenant relationship, both parties are trying to love and serve and minister to the other person. And that's where true sacrificial agape love can flourish. That's where kings will relinquish their crown to a servant joyfully. Now, this uncommon love, it goes beyond blood. It goes beyond biology, and it establishes relationships based upon the righteousness of God. David's popularity increases amongst the people, and as his popularity increases, Saul hates him more and more and wants him dead. And for the remainder of the storyline, with the exception of a brief interlude in chapter 19, Saul tries everything in his power to kill David. David's done nothing wrong. David was a faithful servant to Saul, a faithful servant to God in his kingdom. But Saul wants him dead. In fact, in chapter 18, Saul covertly tries to kill David by secretly manipulating his own, his own daughter, Michael, saying, oh, if I, can get, if I can get David to marry Michael, then the price will be two, 100 foreskins of the Philistines. And when David goes out to fight, surely he'll lose. The Philistines will kill him, and David's off the map. And it fails. David goes out, and he gets 200 foreskins by God's grace. And so after the covert operations in chapter 18, he flat out comes out in 19. Look at chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. Saul comes out and says, I want him dead. He tells all the servants, I want David dead. Saul spoke, verse 1, chapter 19. Saul spoke to his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, verse 2, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. Jonathan spoke well of David to, his, to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. Verse 5, For he took his life in his hand, And he struck down the Philistine, Goliath, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all of Israel. You saw it and you rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? Now, this is a most extraordinary dialogue. Not only is Jonathan holding the covenant that he made with David in chapter 18, but he's putting his life in danger by going before his father and and putting that covenant before the king knowing that Saul wants to kill David. In other words, what he was doing is the covenant set boundaries here for him. The covenant that he made with David was going to supersede 
his own blood, which was his father. Jesus Christ, in Matthew chapter 12, you remember the dialogue when Jesus' Jesus's mother Mary and the brothers and sisters come to talk to Jesus, and, and he says that he that great teaching. He says, who's my mother? Who's my brother? And he says, those who do the will of my father in heaven, that's my mother, that's my brother, that's my sister. And so Jonathan goes and he warns David and he tells him to be careful because Saul indeed wants to kill him. Now, knowing the instability of Saul, Jonathan going into the king's presence with the emotional instability and then speaking on David's behalf was treason. And so he was not only going to care for David by telling him the news that he heard, but he was going to care for David by going before his father and risking his own life. In other words, his relationship in the covenant superseded blood. Now, in my years of ministry, I can tell you that I have noticed that covenant relationships, both with God and with one another, do not reflect this higher love. More often than not, biology, biological bloodlines, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, wives, children, they supersede even amongst unbelieving family. Now, there are three basic covenants we see in Scripture. Man and God, man and man, and husband and wife. Our relationship with God, of course, is supposed to guide all of these relationships. It ought to supersede any pressure we have from family members who try to get us to move away from God, our covenant with God, and our covenant with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet that's not always the case. Jonathan's covenant relationship with David enabled him to stand up against his father in the midst of something his father was doing that was wicked and speak the truth in love, trying to protect David. When your blood parents, aunts, uncles, siblings, children, try to get you to compromise on your covenant with God and your covenant in your marriage or your covenant with one another, when they try to do this, it will be your covenant love for one another that will enable you to do what is right in the midst of those situations, just like it was for Jonathan. Jonathan's covenant helped him do what was right. That means on a beautiful Sunday morning, when your unbelieving family says, you know, it's a gorgeous day, let's go to the beach. When they encourage you to do that, you will say, I have a covenant with God and I have a covenant with my brothers and sisters. I will not go to the beach today, or maybe I won't go in the morning. I'm going to go to church first covenant over biology when your marriage is going through a very difficult time and a brother or sister biology comes to you and they say you know what he was never good for you in the first place you should absolutely divorce him he's making a mess of everything christmas thanksgiving our entire family you won't listen you will remember your covenant with god and with your spouse when your unbelieving children and grandchildren bring distractions into your lives hobbies and sports and entertainment you will not allow those things to distract you from the covenant you have with God and one another. You won't succumb to the pressures of unsaved family merely because they are family, encouraging you to do that which violates your covenant with God and his church. So first we see, I hope, an uncommon sacrificial love that is cultivated in true covenant relationships. We see it between Jonathan and David. Second thing I want you to see, that in a true covenant relationship that is based upon the Bible, it gives us a, a, a right allegiance in how we have relationships. Now, this point is a little more subtle, um, so I hope I don't completely destroy it in trying to explain to you what I saw the passage teach. In the flesh, there's a constant battle for our allegiance. We see it in the culture, we see it with our employers, we see it within families, we see it within churches, constantly being pressured to align ourselves to be faithful to a person or a corporation or an entity. Now, at the onset of chapter 20, Jonathan naively believes that Saul no longer wants to try to kill David. He thinks that his father has, has cooled his um, his temper, and now everything's okay. So David sets him straight. Look at verse 3 in chapter 20 with me. David's going to make sure that Jonathan understands that Saul very much still wants to kill him. Verse 3, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. David's talking to Jonathan. 
And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. In other words, David's saying, I'm in great danger. I'm in grave danger. Your father's hidden this from you, Jonathan. He hasn't told you because he knows how close we are. But he's trying to kill me and he will continue to try to kill me. Now, Jonathan's response reveals the allegiance of Jonathan's heart. Remember, Jonathan, son of King Saul. Jonathan, heir to the throne. Look at what he says in verse 4. So simple and yet utterly profound. Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. Whatever you say, I will do for you. Jonathan wasn't thinking about his relationship with his father. Jonathan wasn't thinking about his future kingdom. The covenant that he had established with David superseded. The boundaries of that covenant superseded father and kingdom. And what happened was he said, I'm going to keep the covenant. I'm going to protect David. I'm going to love David as God has called me to love David. And that means going against my own flesh and blood, my own father. His priority was truly another kingdom. It was for the kingdom of God because David, Jonathan knew that David had been ordained by God to be king, not him. Look at verse 18. Jonathan said to David, tomorrow is the new moon. And you will be missed because your seat will be empty. In other words, it was, it was time for the king's cabinet meeting, their once-a-month meeting. And as part of the king's cabinet, David's absence would be problematic. It wasn't like he just didn't show up. The king wanted to know where you were. So they come up. They have a problem. They come up with a plan. Look at verse 19. On the third day, David, Jonathan says, uh, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remained beside the stone heap. Verse 20, Jonathan says, I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, his servant boy, saying, go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. In other words, they come up, they come up with a plan that David would know. Should I come to the meeting or should I run? Is your father going to try to kill me if I come to the meeting? Or is he going to receive me as a friend? Protecting his friend without intentionally aggravating his father, David and Jonathan, they come up with this plan in order to protect David. In other words... The covenant established clear guidelines for Jonathan and David to navigate these very difficult relational waters, right? This was Jonathan. We're talking about his father. We're talking about a king. And so the covenant established the means by which they would navigate through this. Jonathan didn't go and intentionally try to aggravate Saul, nor did he forsake the covenant with David. He wanted to try to keep him safe. Jonathan was not being tossed about by his emotions. He wasn't saying, do I help David or do I try to please my father? Do I protect David's life or do I submit to a king? He remained faithful to the covenant and it, listen, it guided his path. It guided his path. Now, I would argue that many of our relationships go bad when our allegiance to God or to one another is compromised, when the covenantal boundaries are crossed or broken altogether. How so? Being in a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ, just as we had a chance to sing, the believer's allegiance is to God. His kingdom, his laws, his righteousness first and always. He's first. And that means every single time we sin, in that moment, we're violating the covenant that God made with us in Christ. Every time we sin at that moment, our allegiance is not to our Father, it's not to the King, it's to ourselves, it's to flesh. It's to self-interest, not other interest. God said, you shall have no other gods before me. And when we do this, the result is destruction. Now, thankfully, the covenant, right covenants, biblical covenants, give us biblical boundaries on how to engage in relationships. Psalm 119, verses 105 and 106. Listen to this. Some of you have this memorized, at least 105. The Bible says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. 
I have taken an oath and I've confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. In other words, when we enter into a covenant relationship, we know how to act. We know how to engage. We know how to relate because the covenant establishes that for us. It tells us this is how you relate to God. This is how you relate to a spouse. This is how you relate to brothers and sisters. This is how you relate to your employer. It gives us these guidelines in the word of God. What about husbands and wives? According to the Bible, we enter into covenant relationships with husbands and wives and become one flesh. Husbands promising in Ephesians, from Ephesians chapter 5, was this part of your covenant that you made, men? If not, make it now. To love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. What a profound teaching. I don't think a man should marry a woman unless he says, I agree with this and I'm going to strive my whole life to live in accordance with it. That's extraordinary. What a high calling, men. Husbands, that means when we don't love our wives like this, when we get caught up with work, or school, or hobbies, or kids. When our allegiance is compromised and we serve ourselves or our idols, our sports, or our sleep, or our slothfulness, not only are we in direct violation of the word of God, but that marriage will suffer. You don't have the glorious marital covenant established by God. You have a worldly relationship. If you're, man, if you're not going to live in accordance with Ephesians chapter 5. God created the institution of marriage. He established its boundaries. He told a man how to love a woman and a woman to love a man in the bounds of marriage. So when we change that, when we exercise marriage as we see fit and we bring in our own rules, we have divorce rate that exceeds 50%. Wives, what about you? The Bible tells you in the same chapter of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24, it says, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. You talk about a countercultural teaching today. And yet, women, I will say the same to you as I did to the men. If this is not your understanding of covenant marriage from Ephesians chapter 5, you ought not to marry. You are to be his helpmate. You are to encourage him to be the godly man that God, God has called him to be. That means when you rail against your husband's authority, when you fight against his attempts to raise you or your children in the faith, when you work against him, your allegiance isn't to God or that covenant. It's to self and self-interest. Thankfully, the Bible gives us instruction on proper boundaries in marital relationships. It is filled with godly counsel on how husbands are to love their wives and wives love their husbands. And when husbands and wives do this, when a covenant marriage is established, it is glorious. It is glorious. Husbands and wives loving each other as the covenant calls. For better, for worse, in sickness and health, you finish it for me. Until... Until death do we part. We have covenant with God. We have covenant in marriage. Coming into the body of Christ, you enter into covenant relationships with your brothers and sisters as well. You certainly do in this church. To grow them in the faith. To pray for them. To minister to them. To disciple them. As Timothy says in 2 Timothy 4, to correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. This is what we're called into as brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says in Galatians 6, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. In other words, again, the Bible comes and it says there's a covenant relationship, the boundaries of which are established in the Bible on how we as a church are to interact and relate and love one another. And it's a covenant here. When we exercise this mutual watch care for one another, God is magnified because the world does not do that. The world does not do that. Now you need to know there's a warning of this. You form a covenant with God, or I should say God forms a covenant with you and you come into it. 
You enter a covenant relationship with a husband or wife. You enter a covenant relationship in the church, and it will be costly. It will be costly. Look at verses 27 and following in chapter 20. Chapter 27. On the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place at the table was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Verse 28, Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. Verse 29, For this reason he has not come to the king's table. And Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Listen closely to verse 31. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Verse 32, then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. He had a sign. He knew clearly. Saul would, that was one of Saul's things. He just liked to hurl spears at people. This is four times in these passages, three times with David, once here with Jonathan. Now, being in a covenant relationship with David was costly. It cost him his future crown. It, it cost him his relationship with his own father, who was also the king. There will always be costs involved in any relationship you enter into in a covenantal way. There will always be costs involved. There must be costs involved. Because when you enter a covenant relationship, when you say, I'm committed to that person, I'm going to be faithful to that person, that means others you cannot be. If, if my faithfulness in covenant is with God, then it will require me not to be aligned with the world. If I've entered into a covenant, faithful relationship with my wife, then it means that I will not align myself with another woman. And brothers and sisters, if you have entered into a covenant relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ at a local church, it means that those relationships will be important to you, that you will sustain them and work on them and nourish them. And yes, it will be at the expense of other people. So we've seen an uncommon love that results from covenant relationship. We've seen an ordering of right allegiance. Covenant relationships tell us how to relate. It gives us boundaries, clear boundaries. It is not unclear in my mind that if I commit adultery against my wife, I have broken the covenant of marriage. That's crystal clear. It's not unclear in my mind that if I pursue an idol in my life, I have broken a covenant with my living God. It ought not to be unclear in our minds that if we forsake one another here at this church as covenant people to chase after all these other things, that we are not being faithful to the covenant that we've made as brothers and sisters in Christ here. So uncommon love and ordering of allegiance and lastly, security and peace. You say, finally you get to the good stuff. I want covenant for security. I want covenant with, for peace. Well, very good. Let's look at it. We live in a time, even, you know what? We don't have to say this time. All of human history, because of the fall, there is turmoil. There's turmoil, unresolved conflict. There's tension. There are disputes everywhere we turn. And the more you stand for righteousness and the more you pursue the living God, the more tumultuous your life will be. That's why Jesus tells us to count the costs. And yet, deep down, everybody wants a David-Jonathan relationship. Everybody does. In the midst of the mess, we want security. We don't want turmoil. We want peace. We don't want conflict. David and Jonathan knew how tumultuous life could be. I mean, David had been ordained by Samuel to be the next king. And he had gone out and he won the favor of the people by his victories over the Philistines. And at the same time, the king that he was going to replace was trying to have him killed. He knew tumultuous. Jonathan, in trying to protect his covenant friend David, gave up his throne, 
and lost his father. He lost the relationship with his father. But in their covenant with one another, and this is what's so extraordinary, in David's covenant with Jonathan and Jonathan, they found in that relationship security and peace. They had it together. Let me show you. David's absence at the king's table was bad. Saul got really upset. It was problematic. The question that I have when reading this is that why would David turn to Jonathan for security? I mean, Jonathan is the king's son. Jonathan is the heir to the throne. And yet when David needs help, he goes to Jonathan. Look at verse uh, 8. David says, he's talking to Jonathan. He says, therefore, deal kindly with your servant. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? David was hanging everything upon that covenant that he made with Jonathan before God. Everything came down to this covenant of the Lord that they made one to another. And he's calling upon God to, to, to fulfill that promise and be witness to that covenant that they had made. Biblical covenants involve firm promises and solemn commitments. And I don't use that word lightly. Solemn commitments one to another. And that's why David would turn to Jonathan. The most unlikely confidant would have been Jonathan. And yet because of the covenant, David turns to him and says, keep me safe. Provide safety for me from your father's hand. Jonathan was David's safe haven. He says, deal kindly with your servant. In the Hebrew, the word is hased, and it means a variety of things, primarily mercy, but in the context here, it does it. it's not just love, it is loyal love. It's not just kindness, but just dependable kindness. Not just dependability, but perseverance to the end. This hased, this mercy, this kindness in a covenant relationship is reliable and it's faithful to the end. The covenant gives David the ability to look and expect mercy from Jonathan, a devoted and faithful love. It goes something like this. Love gives itself freely into a covenant. It freely gives itself into a covenant. And then it joyfully promises to be devoted to that partner in the covenant. Covenant with God, covenant between spouses, covenant in a church. You come and you say, I'm going to give my love freely into this covenant relationship and I will stay the course. I will be faithful even when I don't want to be. I will stay the course when things are hard and when things are good. We talk, you want to talk about a contrary teaching today. We enter relationships as long as it's good for us. And then when that relationship goes sour, we leave. We enter into relationships when we think, well, you know what? It's, it's working out okay at this point in time. But if circumstances change, I might not be here. I may leave. That's not what a covenant says. A covenant says, I will love you for better, for worse. In sickness and in health when things are sinful and when things are not, when you're faithful and when you're not, I'm going to stay the course in a true covenant relationship. And that's why you can find rest. There's security there. That's why in a, in a marital relationship, it's the best example because it's the one that I know best. I can have a really bad day with my wife or I, I, I am being the opposite of Ephesians chapter 5 husband. I mean, just screwing up every word, every action is a catastrophic marital mistake. And yet I know she's not going to leave me. You say, well, does that give you license to be a jerk? Well, of course not. What it does do is give me security that when I am a jerk, when my flesh overcomes me, I know that that day or the next day, or that week by God's grace, I can go back and say, I'm an idiot. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And I know she's going to say, you are an idiot, and I do forgive you. Why? Because the covenant has an axiom of security. It's there. It's fixed. David does this with Jonathan. We find Jonathan making a similar appeal. 
It's extraordinary. They both appeal to one another to keep them safe. Look at verses 13 through 15. Jonathan says to David, But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. So Jonathan's saying, if my father wants to harm you and I don't tell you, you know, whatever he was going to do, I pray he does to me. And then he says in the latter part of 13, he says, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I'm still alive, Jonathan thinking what? I'm going to go to my dad. He's going to kill me. He already throw, he, he threw the spear, right? I'm going to go to my dad. Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And then he says in verse 15, do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Incredibly prophetic verse in 15, which we'll look at on Wednesday. Jonathan knows that him by going to his father, it could result in death. And so he appeals to the covenant he made with David for his own security. So David appeals to Jonathan to keep him safe because of the covenant. And Jonathan appeals to David to keep him safe because of the covenant. In other words, they're both relying upon the covenant for security in their relationship. It's fantastic. One to another. David says, I'll watch your back, you watch my back. Jonathan says, I will. And one of the great blessings that comes from security in a relationship, not only do you have transparency, not only do you have the ability to make mistakes and be forgiven and seek forgiveness, but where there's security in a relationship, there's peace, real peace. Jonathan tells David, you go hide in those rocks and I'm going to shoot my arrows. And if I say, isn't the arrow beyond you, that'll be your signal to flee because my, my father wants your life. If you hear me say, isn't the arrow beyond you to my servant? Then you know, you know that it's dangerous. Do not come back. And then he does this. The servant is dismissed. Well, let me read to you verses 41 through 42. As soon as the boy had gone, the servant David rose from behind the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. The love between these two men it's just, it's overwhelming to me. They kissed one another and they wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. They never saw each other again. Never saw each other. Go in peace. How? Could Jonathan say to David, go in peace, when Jonathan knew and just told David that my father, father's going to try to continue to kill you? How could he possibly say, go in peace? He says it because of the oath that was taken. Look again. The Lord shall be between them and their offspring forever. End of verse 42. In other words, Jonathan says, go in peace because there's peace in this most important relationship. Jonathan's saying to David, the world can be crashing down around you. People can be pursuing your life, but know this, there's peace between us. And you know as well as I do, in those really important relationships between you and God and you and your spouse or you and a brother and sister, when there is peace there, then all is good. You say, have the world come crashing down. I have peace with God. I have peace with my family. I have peace with my church. Bring it. And that's exactly what Jonathan is saying to David. Otherwise, the statement makes no sense because there's not going to be peace. He's going to be running. But there was peace in this one relationship, an anchor for their souls, an unbreakable covenant when all else was going to fail. Now, when you read their interaction and their departure at the end of chapter 20, if you're like me, you say to yourself, I want that kind of relationship. I want a Jonathan. I want a David. I want that. Someone I can turn to when my whole life is crashing in the midst of utter turmoil. Someone I can turn to and know their security and peace. Someone I can turn to 
that I know that no matter what happens, this person will never leave me. They'll never forsake me. They're going to stand by my side like a Jonathan or a David until the end. If you're like me, you've said, I want this uncommon love that, that goes beyond fleshly relationships. I want a relationship that defines my allegiances. I want this security. I want this peace. Everyone, everyone who reads this says, I want this. Even the unsaved go, this is so good. Who wouldn't want it? Here's the good news. Here's the great news. Jesus Christ offers you that exact relationship with him today. If you have been saved by God's grace through faith in the Son, then Jesus Christ is your Jonathan. He's your Jonathan. You see that. If you're unsaved, here's the glorious news. If you're still dead in your sins, you have yet to confess your sins before a holy God and repent and believe, then Christ offers you that this morning as well. He says, repent and believe and I will be your Jonathan. You'll enter into a covenant relationship with me that'll make this relationship between Jonathan and David look rudimentary at best. To the saved and the unsaved, Jesus comes to fallen man and he says, I will enter into a covenant relationship with you so that we can enjoy this type of communion both now and forever. Communion with Christ and God forever. How does he do this? You want to know, don't you? Are you still with me? You know, it's hard to read you at times. It's hard to read you. Sometimes, are they there? Are they not there? Are they ready to go? You're hungry. This is the best part, so stay with it. How does Jesus Christ show us the most uncommon love? The Bible says in John 15, 13, greater love has no, no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. In order to pay for your sins and offer you eternal life instead of death, Glory instead of condemnation, Jesus Christ laid down his life by being crucified on a Roman cross. And he did this for you and me while we were still enemies, not friends. Just as Jonathan, out of his covenant love for David, sacrificed his relationship with his father, Jesus Christ, out of his covenant love for you, sacrificed his relationship with his father. This is the most uncommon love. No greater love has ever been displayed than the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ on a cross. No greater love, the capital T M, most uncommon love ever, is the love that Christ showed for us in entering a covenant through the cross. How does He give us order and allegiance and relationship? In Mark chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus Christ pulls from Deuteronomy 6 5 and Leviticus 19 18, and He brings two commandments together. This is what he writes, or this is what he says. We write, Mark 12, verses 30 and 31. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The the second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. In other words, Jesus says, I'll make it real simple. You want to have right allegiances, right fidelity, right boundaries? He says, love God first and foremost. And then love one another. Where does that put us? Below that. Love God first. Love one another. He gives us this narrow gospel path. And it is a narrow path. And it's operated by the, by the law of the gospel of grace. Love God first. Love one another. And not only does the Bible teach us this in great detail, but it tells us that God gives us the power in the Holy Spirit to actually do this. This This is the most impossible commandment given. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love one another. And yet, God calls us to it, and then he equips us. He imparts to us his grace. He imparts to us the Holy Spirit. He gives us a heart, a new heart, a new mind, that we might be these people. So not only does Christ bring us an uncommon love, does he give us right allegiances, But lastly, when you enter into a covenant with Jesus Christ, he says, I will give you security and peace that you can know both now and forever. 
A covenant relationship with Jesus Christ offers security and peace now and forever for the believer. John chapter 6, verse 39, Jesus said, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, he promises that every single person the Father brings to him, he will not lose one. There's no greater security than being a believer in covenant relationship with Christ. You cannot be lost. You cannot be forsaken. You cannot be left. And not only in the end, because that's the greatest concern, where will I spend all of eternity? But Christ says, I offer this security to you right now in the midst of the mess, in the midst of all the turmoil. He says, I'm bringing security into your immediate life now. We can draw from Isaiah 43. Listen with all your might. The Lord said, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. I love that. God says, I've called, you're mine. You should, you should be so overwhelmed with the thought that God says, you're mine. Verse 2, Isaiah 43. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. A few chapters later in Isaiah 41, he said, so fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. He's talking about right now, right now, security forever and security now. That's what Christ offers in a covenant relationship with him through grace. And God God is truth. He's a covenant keeper. He doesn't break his covenants. He doesn't break his promises. He can't break his promises. So if you're in Christ, he will keep that covenant with you, bringing security to you. And if you have security with Christ, then you have peace. You say, I don't feel like I have peace. Well, maybe you don't, but you have peace if you have security in Christ. John 14, 27, Jesus said, peace I leave with you. And then he said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Saints, I cannot believe how miserable I am at hearing this verse. Let not your hearts be troubled. Do you have that problem? My heart gets troubled so much. And he says, you don't let that happen. Don't be afraid. I got you. When you walk through the waters, I'll be there. When you go through the fire, I'll be there. His blood was sufficient, saints. His blood was sufficient to pay the price. The Holy One went before the Father, and the Father was pleased. The, uh, the Father and the Son, there's peace between them. And Jesus Christ takes that peace and he imparts it to us if you're in him. The blood was sufficient to make peace between God and man. If God punished Jesus Christ for your sins, that means... He cannot punish you. There's peace between you and God if you're in Christ. When Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, Jesus Christ was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus Christ says to you this morning, saved and unsaved, listen, he says, I have an uncommon love for you. I will rightly order your allegiances and your relationships, and I will bring you a security and peace that nothing in this world offers. And he says, I'm going to do this through the cross. I will do this by my body being broken and my blood being spilled. He offers this to you this morning freely. It is a gift of grace. You cannot earn it. You cannot work for it. He says, I'm bringing it to you as a gift. And he says, take it. Why? Because today is the day of salvation. Take the gift. Take the love. Take the allegiance. Take the security. Take the peace. The only question I have is, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't anybody? Why would we say, I don't want that love. I don't want that relationship. I don't want that security. I don't want that peace. Freely offered this morning. Now, the blessings of this covenant relationship do not begin and end with Christ. They're to, to, to move beyond. 
They're to move into the body of Christ. And I think this is the hardest part. We like most of what was said thus far until we get to this part. So strap a seatbelt. Just hold on for a bit, will you? God intends for us to exercise these radical covenant Jonathan-David relationships amongst ourselves to be exercised. When we enter a covenant relationship with God, we enter into covenant relationship with the body, the body of Christ. We enter into a covenant relationship with his church. It is amazing to me the amount that has been written by pastors arguing against covenant relationships, and I just don't see it in the Bible. When you come into a local church, whether you... Whether there's a formal covenant or not, or you agree to it or not, the Bible speaks directly to covenant bonds between brothers and sisters in the Lord. In other words, God intends us to exercise this glorious covenant relationship we have with Christ with one another, where we put one another first, where we bring an uncommon love to the people of this church, where we bring right allegiance where we bring security and peace out of our love for one another how does this happen well the first thing you got to do is you got to enter into a covenant relationship in verse in chapter 18 verse 3 it says jonathan made a covenant with david because he loved him as his own soul it should be something you enter because of love you desire this type of relationship but you enter into it that means you have to agree to it my wife and I stood before God and man and we took vows and entered into a covenant relationship. You don't just kind of slide into one and slide back out. You enter into it. You say, I will be your brother. I will love you. I will pray for you. I will disciple you. I will hold you accountable. You will be my brother. I will be your, your We're called into the church to exercise this most uncommon love. Encouraging, rebuking, admonishing, spending time ministering to one another, meeting each other's needs. Costly. What did it cost Jonathan? It cost him his throne. It cost him his father. But his relationship with David was, was more important. What will it cost you? I mean, what will it cost you if you say, I'm going to, out of my covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, be a covenant member of a local church, what will it cost you? I will tell you. It will cost you time, a lot of time, because you need to know people you're in covenant with. You gotta, I mean, you've got to know them. It's not just, hey, how are you on Sunday? I'll see you next Sunday. You've got to know them. You've got to eat with them. You've got to drink coffee with them. You've got to serve with them. When they're sick, you'll spend time with them. When they're healthy, you'll play with them. When, 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 you're, when you have time, you'll study together. Just together. It means when they don't have money, you'll give them money. It'll cost you. It means when they don't have a place to stay, you'll put them up and give them a place to stay. It'll cost you a room. If they don't have a car, you'll give them a car. It'll cost you a car. It'll cost you time and money and resources and energy, but it'll all be worth it. Why? Because in this covenant relationship, you love them more than you love yourself. No one said this is easy, but it is absolutely worth it. It means that when you meet together, we'll make it really practical. When you meet together and have coffee and, and lunch and stuff, don't just talk about the weather and sports and work. Don't just do that. It means you'll be intentional about dialogue. And I'm not saying don't talk about weather and sports and work. That's important too. But talk about your life. Talk about Christ. Talk about your spiritual maturation. Talk about the unsaved in your mission field. Talk about those things too. In too many churches, we think fellowship is simply eating a meal together. That's not what the Bible says. Fellowshipping is striving together. It's working together. It's ministering together. Be intentional with your time. It's so limited, saints. We have so little time together. Be intentional. These relationships within the body, they should look radically different than the world. You won't just relate to people who look like you and talk like you. In the kingdom of God, you will form covenant relationships with, the, with people that are most unlike you. Why? 
because the bond that we share is not a sports team and it's not work and it's not technology and it's not an education. The bond that we share is Christ and therefore we all have the greatest thing in common which is Jesus. And therefore the oldest and the youngest, the richest and the poorest, the most educated and the most ill-educated can come together in a covenant relationship and have the most intimate David-Jonathan relationship ever because of Christ. My ears burn when believers say, you know, I just don't have a lot in common with them. They believe in Christ, you believe in Christ. What else is there to talk about? You've got to be kidding me. You have the ultimate person in common. We started off this sermon with the soul of Jonathan being knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. We can enjoy this type of covenant love as well. I mean, it's an extraordinary thought to me. You can have this covenant love with God. You can have this covenant love with one another in the church. And if God so blesses you, you can have that type of covenant love with a husband or a wife. Far from being restrictive or oppressive or unloving, covenant relationships are the most profound expressions of love revealed to man. Most profound. And we can have them through Christ with God and through Christ with one another. There's no better relationship, even though the world says otherwise. Now, for those of you who gathered in here, and if you are a traditional Southern Baptist, you say, wait a minute, we're having communion. Didn't we already do that once this month? There is nothing in the Bible that says communion once a month. In fact, it actually says every time you gather to do this. We do know that. So if you're bent out of shape because we're breaking tradition, then by God's grace, I'm thankful you're bent out of shape because we're breaking tradition. We try not to do tradition or religion. Why are we going to celebrate communion? When we take the bread that represents the body of Christ, we remember that it was his broken body on the cross instead of ours, that he is our substitute. When we take the cup that represents the juice we understand that the blood that was spilled was his blood instead of our blood. And it was his blood that established a new and everlasting covenant with us, those that he would redeem by grace through faith. In other words, we recognize that the wrath that we rightly deserve as a result of our sin will pass over us because of the blood of Christ. But the communion table, not only according to the Bible, but throughout church history, has also been a time and a place where believers express one to another their covenant love in the church. Not only their covenant with God through Christ, but their covenant to brothers and sisters in Christ. And just like baptism is one of the two holy ordinances that we recognize is a public confession before God and man, so too is the communion table a public ordinance before God and man. And it's part of it is for us to remember Christ and recognize, listen closely, recognize and affirm who our brothers and sisters in Christ are. How am I supposed to know who to enter a covenant relationship with? You have baptism and you have communion. And when we commune around a table and when you take the juice that represents the blood and the bread that represents the body, I can say, that's my brother. I can have a covenant relationship with my brother. That's my sister. We both recognize and affirm that covenant one to another. If you are a member here at Camden Avenue Baptist Church, then you've entered into a covenant relationship. What I'd like to do if the men, some men would come forward so we can distribute the elements. As we pass out the bread and the juice that represent the broken body and spilled blood of Christ, I want you to, if you're a member here, visitors, by all means, read through it as well. It's scriptural. But if you're a member here, open up your bulletin, and on a purple handout is the membership covenant. I'd like for you to read that silently. Read it to yourself. And as you do, I want you to contemplate two things. One, your faithfulness in your covenant with God. And two, your faithfulness in covenant with one another here in this church as a member of this church. And as you contemplate, if you realize you've been unfaithful, then don't feel guilty. 
seek forgiveness. As Pastor Kurt read this morning, if you're fit, God forgives us when we confess our sins. He's faithful and just. If you've been faithful, then praise God. If you're struggling in it to be a covenant keeper, then ask God for the strength. There's no bad response. Confession, thankfulness, or power. So read through this carefully and examine yourself. On the night that our Savior was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, this is my body which will be given up for you. When we eat it, we are to remember him. We're to remember the covenant that he made with us and we're to remember the covenant that we are to have as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. This is his body. And so when you take this, Rejoice in the covenant that he established with us through his broken body. And rejoice in the covenant relationship that he's given us opportunities to have on this side of heaven, one to another. Eat. The Bible tells us that after the supper was over, he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of my blood which will be shed for you. His blood was shed that we might be redeemed covenant promise made by God to man to all who repent and believe by God's grace we will exercise this faithfully in our love for God and our faithful covenant love for one another drink covenant relationship when you read that the vows that we take in marriage it doesn't mean that you're going to do that flawlessly. In fact, if you say you've done it perfectly, then that makes you a liar and you can confess of that. But this gives us the biblical parameters in which to strive. We should desire to strive to be these covenant people with God and with one another. So let's do this. Let's, let's stand and I'll pray and then we will close with one more hymn in the doxology. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that we are covenant breakers and we're so thankful that you are a covenant keeper, that you did the great work through Christ that you might call us into a relationship, a loving covenant relationship now and that will go on for eternity because of his faithfulness on the cross. We praise you for that great work, knowing how unworthy we are of it. I ask also, Lord, that you impart to us a heart's desire to have covenant relationships amongst the brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would have Davids and Jonathans in our lives, that we would be able to say because of Christ and because of we're being in Christ, that we can love one another in this radical fashion, this most uncommon love can be expressed here, right boundaries and relationships, true security and true peace with real people in real covenant relationship. I pray that you would bless us with that, Father, for the sole purpose of bringing you honor and glory. For when the world looks at us and they see us loving each other in this most uncommon way, they will know it's because of you. And the Bible says they will glorify your name. Be gracious with us in that manner, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.